So I just read John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. But we're actually only looking at the last half of John 1, 14. And then a few verses, the few verses that follow it as we come to the end of John's prologue, verses 15 to 18. So halfway through John 1, 14, all the way to the end of verse 18. That's what we're covering this morning. And there is a lot packed in this little section of Scripture. Six proper names are dropped in these four and a half verses. The Son of God, God the Father, John the Baptist, Moses, Jesus Christ, and then just God, without reference to any one person of the Trinity. And then there's also a parenthesis interrupting the main flow of the author's thought. Then there's talk of rank and glory alongside the concept of equality. And then there's an antithesis drawn between what the author calls the law and then grace and truth that came through Jesus Christ. That's all packed into just those few little three and a half verses or four and a half verses. So it's a packed little section of scripture. But I think we can do it. And here's where we have to start though. This is central to understanding it all as we unpack it in detail. We have to start with the antithesis that's mentioned. We'll touch on everything, but let's start with that antithesis that's mentioned in this passage between what the author calls the law and then the grace and truth that came through Jesus Christ. John Calvin summarizes the antithesis like this. When John contrasts the law with grace and truth, his meaning is that the law lacked both of them. That is, the law lacked grace and truth. So that's kind of a summary. But let's explore that in a little bit more detail. Specifically, this assertion that the law lacked grace and truth. What does that mean? Understanding this assertion that the law lacked grace and truth is fundamental to understanding first the antithesis drawn here in this passage. And then, secondly, the whole section of Scripture that we're dealing with today, since the antithesis itself is central to understanding these four and a half verses. So the first thing that we need to understand about the assertion that the law lacked grace and truth is what is meant when John says here in this passage, the law. We need to understand what the referent of that term is. To what is John referring in John chapter 1 and verse 17 when he says the law. We're going actually to leave John chapter 1 for a few minutes to get some clarity about the way in which this term the law is used throughout scripture. And then we're actually going to come back to John chapter 1 after we get some clarity on that. So turn with me now for a minute to Romans chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. Romans chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. It says this, Sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. 
Alright. There's actually two different uses of the phrase, the law, in Romans chapter 5 and verse 13. We're going to look at both of those, distinguish between the two, figure out which one it is that John means in John chapter 1, and then we're going to go back to John 1. That's what we're going to do. Sometimes the phrase, the law, when it's used in the scripture, means God's moral standards as, re- as revealed to humans. Just simply, God's moral standards as revealed to humans. What it is that God expects of humans. Sometimes that's what the law means. And an instance of this way of using the term is at the end of Romans 5.13. The second time Paul uses the word law in that verse. Sin is not counted where there is no law. When he uses it there, he's just simply referring to God's moral standards as published to humans or as revealed to humans. Even if there are no standards published, of course someone could still breach the standards. So let's let's say that there are no dogs allowed at a particular beach. But someone came in the night and took the sign away. Well, obviously, someone could still come in the morning and bring a dog on the beach and therefore violate the rule without knowing that it was a rule if the rule hadn't been published. Right? Clearly, it's possible to violate a rule that hasn't been published. It is possible for someone to break rules that someone doesn't know about. However... Romans 5.13 explains that God will not hold the human race guilty for breaching standards that he hasn't published. Sin is not counted where there is no law. So what he means there, when he says law, is simply God's moral standards as revealed to humans. If God hasn't revealed any standards, any moral standards to humans then God isn't going to hold anyone guilty for violating those standards. That's what Romans 5.13 is saying at the end. But he goes on to say, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. So, far from saying that God had not published his law before Moses which is how some people interpret Romans chapter 5 and verse 13. Paul's point is actually the opposite. God must have published his law before Sinai since people were held accountable for breaking God's law. People died before Sinai, but since sin is not counted where there is no law, therefore there must be law before Sinai. So that's Paul's point in Romans 5, 13 and 14. There actually is law before Moses. So the moral, there is a moral standard of God published to the whole human race, written on our hearts at creation, which is what Romans 2 talks about, which is valid before Moses. It's obviously still God's moral standard under Moses, as God's not going to get more lenient and just ignore the demands of his holiness under Moses. And then after Moses, this standard which was given at creation is still valid. 
So sometimes that moral standard is sometimes the referent when biblical authors say the law. They just mean what God expects of all people everywhere, which he wrote in our heart at creation. This is the first usage of the term the law that we're going to continue, or pardon me, that we're going to consider today. But before we consider the other use of the term, the first time that Paul uses the law in Romans 5.13, let's just try this usage like Cinderella's slipper in John chapter 1 and verse 17 and see if it fits. All right? Does it make sense to say the moral standard of God came through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ? No, it doesn't. In view of Romans 5, 13 and 14, no, it doesn't. Because Paul's point in Romans 5, 13 and 14 is that the first appearance of the law is actually not at Sinai, but is actually all the way back to Adam. Which is why death reigned from Adam to Moses. Sin is not counted where there is no law. And so since sin was counted, therefore the implication that Paul is trying to tease out is there must have been a law. That's why people died even from Adam to Moses. God held them accountable for sin. Indicating that even before Moses there was a law. Even before the law was given, right? You can see now he's doing a little play on words here. He's using uh, some fancy speech here in Romans 5.13. Even before the law was given, there was a law. This is what Paul is saying in Romans 5.13 and 14. And that brings us then to our second usage that we're going to consider this morning. Paul speaks in Romans 5.13 about sin being in the world before the law was given. And then he refers to Moses. So obviously, when he uses the law in that sense, he's not talking about God's standards everywhere. The standards which caused people to be held guilty all the way from Adam to Moses. Now he's using the law in a different sense. As I just explained, when Paul says law at the end of Romans 5.13, he's speaking of God's moral standard, which he goes on to demonstrate was operative even from Adam to Moses. But in the first half of Romans 5.13, Paul is using the law to refer to the moral standard of God as given to Moses in the context of that covenant. God did repeat his law, the law that was operative even before Moses, God did repeat his law to Moses and through Moses in the context of a covenant made with the nation of Israel. What covenant is that? That covenant is sometimes called by theologians the Mosaic Covenant, since Moses was leading Israel when it was made. Other times it's called the Sinai Covenant, since the geographic location where it was made was Sinai. In Hebrews 6, it's called the Old Covenant, since it's superseded by a new covenant. All of these terms mean basically the same thing when when we use them. The Sinai Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Covenant. When Paul says then, the law, the first time in Romans 5.13, he's referring to God's moral standard in the context of that covenant. The Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, the Sinai Covenant. 
that is in its old covenant context. So Romans 5, 13 and 14, we're going we're gonna to wrap up here. I'm just going to read it like I'm saying, with the meanings, putting in the meanings that I'm telling you are operative here. For sin was indeed in the world before the law was given to Moses at Sinai in the Old Covenant. But sin is not counted where there is no moral standard. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. And you see how that makes sense of Romans 5, 13 and 14. Now, let's, let's go back to John chapter 1. Does this second usage fit in John chapter 1 and 16, verse 16? Is John, when he says the law, referring to the law given in its old covenant context? Does that fit? It would read like this. The moral standard of God in its old covenant context was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Yes. Cinderella's slipper fits. So now let's circle back to John chapter 1 and move on with our exposition of that text with this meaning in mind. Now that we understand the manner in which John is using the term the law and consider what he means in John chapter 1 and verse 16. And at this juncture, I'll remind you of Calvin's quote that I gave you at the beginning. When John contrasts the law with grace and truth, His meaning is that the law lacked both of them. That is grace and truth. John is telling us, indeed, that the law in its old covenant context lacked grace and truth. John is contrasting them. What's being brought out? John is contrasting them. God's dealings with people before Christ's incarnation through the Old Covenant, with God's dealings with people after the Incarnation in the New Covenant. John is contrasting the covenants that God made with people. The Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So the law, in its Old Covenant context, lacked grace and truth. What does this not mean? And then what does it mean? Let's consider each of those questions in turn. First, saying that the law in its old covenant context lacked grace and truth does not mean that the law in its old covenant context was completely void of mercy and grace or that it was full of falsehood and lies instead. That's not what we're saying, obviously. As Rick Phillips rightly notes in his commentary, we shouldn't downplay the blessing that the law was for Israel. It was a great help to be told very clearly what God requires. Or I might even say reminded of what God requires now that our consciences have been marred and distorted by sin and are no longer as they were for Adam in his innocency, a reliable guide to right and wrong. Phillips says... It was a great help to be told, or I would add, reminded, what God requires. The law also reveals our need for God's mercy, since it shows us our sin. That's gracious, right? Then Phillips adds that Moses' law was accompanied by promises of grace. This was Israel's ceremonial law, consisting mainly of blood sacrifices for the cleansing of sin. 
These were pictures of the grace that Christ would bring. So the law, as given in its Old Covenant context, was not void of grace nor void of truth. There was grace present and truth present, even in this covenant of which the principle was do this and live, as Romans 10 and verse 5 says. So saying that the law in its Old Covenant context lacked grace and truth does not mean that the law in its Old Covenant context was completely void of mercy and grace and that it was full of falsehood and lies instead. What does it mean then to say that the law in its Old Covenant context lacked grace and truth? It means that the law in its Old Covenant context contained partial and shadowy grace and truth. As Calvin says, a comparison is made between the less and the greater. And with that summary in mind of the manner in which the law in its Old Covenant context lacked grace and truth, let's turn now to consider the main idea of today's message. Jesus brings fullness of grace and truth. Where John the Baptist, where Moses, and where even the Old Covenant itself only brought partial and shadowy grace and truth. It's hard to miss the obvious fact that this is the main idea of John 1, 14 to 18. Jesus is said to be full of grace and truth in John 1, 14. And then in John 1.17, the phrase appears again as we read that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And clear contrasts are drawn between John and Jesus, between Moses and Jesus, and as we've just seen, between the Old Covenant and what Jesus is bringing in, which we know from later scriptures is the New Covenant. So again, the main idea of this passage is this. Jesus brings fullness of grace and truth where John, Moses, and even the Old Covenant itself brought only partial and shadowy grace and truth. Jesus says about John the Baptist in Luke 7.28 that among those born of women, none is greater than John. Abraham then was not greater than John. Not Isaac nor Jacob not Moses nor Joshua, none of the judges, none of the prophets were greater than John. None of the kings even were greater than John. Not even Solomon in all his splendor or David, this type of the Christ, were greater than John. Among them, those born of women There is none greater than John. That's what Jesus says about John. And that's high praise. But then listen, this is what John says about Jesus in John 1.15. He ranks before me. He ranks before me. Jesus had some high praise for John. But John has some higher praise for Jesus. No one up until John was greater than John. 
But Jesus shows up on the scene and John says, He ranks before me. And he says, He ranks before me because He was before me. This can't simply mean that Jesus was older than John and therefore greater because for one thing, He wasn't. Jesus was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary when John's mom was already pregnant. Luke chapter 1 and verse 36. So Jesus was the younger man. So that can't be what John means. And for another thing, if John simply meant that Jesus was greater because he was older, then every older man would be greater than John by virtue of his age. And so John would be saying something insignificant. What John is getting at when he says he was before me is what Jesus is going to say later in John's Gospel. Before Abraham was... I am. Look at John 1.14. The word is, as the King James and the New American Standard correctly translate it, the only begotten Son of God. As Denny Burke notes, this only begotten is the basis for the language that the Nicene Creed uses later in church history for confessing that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. In view of this, we might say that John's sermons are full of grace and truth as He preaches the coming Christ. But Jesus, in His very person, as light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. John's sermons are full of grace and truth as He preaches the coming Christ. But Jesus, in His very person, is full of grace and truth. And from His fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Look at verse 16. The we here seems to be new covenant believers in Christ Jesus. Since John comes immediately after this statement in the very next verse to the antithesis we talked about earlier, which is a contrast between covenants. So we, that is new covenant believers, have received grace upon grace, as the ESV puts it. Or grace for grace, as the King James puts it. The idea here, which is evident from the antithesis that follows immediately afterwards. The idea here is that Jesus brings more and fuller grace where the Old Covenant was lacking. The Old Covenant, though conditioned upon obedience, was nevertheless gracious in many ways. Yet the New Covenant gives more and fuller grace on top of grace upon grace or in the place of superseding the grace of the old covenant grace for grace now Calvin issues an important qualifier and explanation here he says what is ascribed to us that is New Testament saints is not absolutely denied to them Old Testament saints 
but a comparison is made between the less and the greater. So Calvin is saying it's not as if Old Testament saints had nothing to do with the grace that Christ brings. There is and there never has been any other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Everyone who has ever been saved from the fall of Adam until the second return of Christ shall be saved by that seed of the woman promised in Genesis chapter 3 who should crush the serpent's head. By that offspring of Abraham in whom all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. By David's greater son who shall ascend to David's throne and rule and reign at God's right hand. The Lord Jesus Christ. It's not as if Old Testament saints had nothing to do with the grace that Christ brings. However, Old Testament believers received the grace that Christ would bring in a more limited and a promissory form than New Testament believers do. Now that Christ has actually come and the new covenant has actually been established. The covenant of grace is no longer awaiting the fulfillment of its terms by the one that God had appointed the surety. As Jesus said on the cross, that work is finished. So Old Testament saints drew from the fullness of Christ just as we do. But as Calvin also says, under the law, the gifts of God were more sparingly tasted. But when Christ was manifested in the flesh, they were poured out, as it were, with a full hand, even to satiety, which I had to look up, and it means gratified beyond our capacity. When Christ came, what was tasted sparingly then, we taste now in such a way that we are gratified to beyond capacity. So Jesus is equal to the Father as the Word who was with God and the Word who was God, who is His eternally begotten Son, the only begotten God, as John 1.18 puts it. As the Word who was with God and the Word who was God then, Jesus is equal to the Father Superior to John. As he was before John. He brings everything to fulfillment. Which was partial and shadowy in the old covenant. Fuller grace. Fuller truth. Grace upon grace. Grace for grace. And as such he is superior to Moses. And to the old covenant itself. As much superior as the builder of a house is to the house that he built. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 3. Brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. Those who are trusting. And those who are not yet trusting in Christ Jesus. In view of these things, we need to recognize the blessedness of being in the new covenant. Certainly, we should see the blessedness of being in the new covenant as opposed to being in the old covenant. For one thing, being in the new covenant is better than being in the old covenant for the simple fact that no one can be in the old covenant anymore anyway. Since Hebrews 8 tells us that it is now obsolete 
and has vanished away. But secondly, even if someone could, for the sake of argument, be in the Old Covenant, the New Covenant is better. Luke 10, 24 and Matthew 13, 17 are parallel passages that make the same point. Jesus says to His disciples, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it. To hear what you hear and did not hear it. We who have seen the glory of God in the face of Christ have no desire anymore for the partial and shadowy ministry of death, as 2 Corinthians 3 calls it. The Old Covenant was glorious in its own way. It was weighty. It was majestic. It created in us a sense of awe at God's transcendence, at His power. It showed us some grace, but partial and shadowy grace. And it gave us some truth. But Christ Jesus brings all of these things to fullness and does what the Old Testament, the Old Covenant could never do. He saves us. So Christ's ministry is not the ministry of death, as 2 Corinthians 3 calls it. But it is a ministry of life and life everlasting. People who are ethnically Jewish and who refuse Jesus of Nazareth, banking instead on the old covenant promises that God made to the Jews, need to reckon with the way that Scripture talks about God's program for the Jews from here on out. I am not ashamed of the gospel, Romans 1.16, because it, that is the gospel, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew. Then to the Greek. Or Romans 10 and verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. We should see, certainly, the blessedness of being in the New Covenant as opposed to the Old Covenant, as John contrasts those very explicitly in John chapter 1 and verse 17. But we should also see the blessedness of being in the New Covenant as opposed to being in the Covenant of Works. Though the Old Covenant is no longer in effect, the Covenant of Works is The covenant of works is not a biblical term, admittedly, just like the Trinity is not a biblical term, but we're not necessarily going to throw out terms just because the terms are not there. When the concept is there, terms like Trinity can be useful, and likewise covenant of works is useful. Covenant of works is a term theologians have coined to describe the nature of God's relationship with all humans by virtue of our relationship to Adam, the first man. 
Adam in the beginning was appointed as a representative of all mankind. Romans 5, 12-21, 1 Corinthians talk about that. Adam's sin then, Adam's sin then, in the beginning, was counted as ours. That's what, again, Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 teach us. In Adam all die. Because of one man's sin, all die. We all became guilty and corrupt in Adam. This is the terms of each person's relationship with God ever since the fall by nature. We are guilty and corrupt by virtue of being covenantally represented by Adam. If Adam had not sinned, we would not be guilty and corrupt. But Adam did sin, so we are guilty and corrupt. It was all dependent upon Adam's works, which is why theologians call it the covenant of works. So even if you don't know that you're in the covenant of works, you are, unless you're in the new covenant. If you're not in the new covenant, that is, in Christ, then you are yet still in Adam, outside of Christ Jesus, guilty and corrupt in Him. Each one of us here, Every one of us, each and every one of us, is either guilty in Adam and the covenant of works, or pardoned in Christ Jesus and His new covenant. Either dead in our trespasses and sins in Adam and the covenant of works, or a new creation in Christ Jesus and the new covenant. Either under God's wrath in Adam and the covenant of works, or under God's paternal care in Christ and the new covenant. You can see the contrast is clear. Not only is it more blessed to be in the new covenant than the old, but it's more blessed to be in this new covenant than it is to be in the covenant of works, which is the default setting for all of us. The Word became flesh. For us and our salvation. Not only to reveal His inherent glory. As the Son of God. Over and against mere humans. Like John the Baptist and Moses and all the preceding Old Testament figures. But the Word became flesh also to reveal His glory in doing What no Old Testament figure could ever do. Save us. And so we see in Christ Jesus not only a greater glory than we see in John or Moses by virtue of who He is, but we see a greater glory in Christ Jesus also by virtue of what He has done in pouring out from His fullness grace upon grace the fullness of grace and truth he is the second Adam from above as that Christmas hymn puts it 
born to reinstate us in His love. He has come to undo what was done in the first place by Adam. To undo the curse that God put upon this earth because of Adam. Genesis chapter 3. And to undo this curse that God has put upon us because of Adam. Also Genesis chapter 3. Jesus has come to make all things new. Those who trust in Him enter the new covenant. Have our sins pardoned. Become new creations in Christ. Come under God's fatherly care and have the assurance and hope of, as we sang earlier, being His forever. Now into eternity. Yet those outside Christ Jesus and the new covenant remain in Adam and in the violated covenant of works, subject only to this sin-marred existence and eternal torment hereafter. It's clear then that not only is it more blessed to be in the new covenant than the old, but it's more blessed to be in the new covenant than the covenant of works. If you're not in Christ yet, you haven't trusted in Jesus. Come. Put your faith in Him who as this passage tells us is full of grace and truth. The one who from His fullness you may receive grace and Upon grace. If you're not in Christ Jesus yet. If you're not in the new covenant yet. Come. If you are in Christ Jesus in the new covenant. Let these glorious truths wash over you afresh. We have received. Past tense. Grace upon grace. From the fullness of Christ Jesus. We Christians have received from the fullness of Jesus. Grace upon grace. Our God became flesh for us to dispense from His fullness grace and truth to us. The invisible God, whom it says here, no man has ever seen, has been made known to us in the person of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now He is ours, and we are His. Jesus brings fullness of grace and truth, where John, Moses, and even the whole Old Covenant brought only partial and shadowy grace and truth. And that fullness is ours in Him and in the new covenant. Hallelujah.